0: Peace and joy to you all, and a happy Easter to everybody. And I mean, this is a territory that is very strange and very unusual to us, or at least as far as I am aware of, this is the first time in the history of the Westchester congregation where we are not having our traditional Easter service in our church building. We're not going to see anybody dressed to the nines in Easter suits and all of those pastel colors. And at least as far as Amanda and I go, our Easter lunch is probably going to consist of something like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Ruffles potato chips. And so everything is just very strange and very unusual here this year. And yet I find it very interesting, though, in the Word of God how this is not the only time that God's people found themselves in an environment, in a situation, in a territory that felt very unusual to them, on the day that that had been venerated above all other days amongst God's holy nation. Or we look all the way back to the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and we see just how enormously important every single year it was for them in celebration of the Passover. And for us to to really understand just exactly what the Passover was to the ancient Israelites, it would be something akin to a combination of Christmas Day and the 4th of July. And so just imagine how much emotion is invested in, in something like that, how much joy and how much happiness there would be. And yet it's interesting because it all begins with the Hebrews being locked inside slave houses they had been told to to then sprinkle blood on the doorpost of those houses. And everybody had been told very, very strictly, do not leave your house until the morning time comes. And sure enough, as everybody's locked inside those those slave houses, God is passing over all of those houses. And yet what we also know about the Passover is that it was a commemoration of their departure from, from Egypt, from slavery. And so what I want to do for just a few moments here this morning is to reflect on, on very strange and very weird Passovers that we read about in the Word of God. And so I just want us to imagine Christmas Day being canceled. Where we wake up and it's Christmas, but, but what we are told is that, no, 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 Christmas is canceled now. I mean, imagine what that would, would actually be like to experience. And it's in the book of Esther where we read there in chapter 3 and, and in verses 13 and 14, of this plan that is hatched behind closed doors that that every Jewish man, woman, and child is going to be exterminated. I mean, this was long before the Holocaust of World War II. This is the very first time that anybody is going to decide we're going to it's wipe the Jewish race off the face of the earth. And yet what is so significant about this is is how there in chapter 3 and in verse 13, it explains how on the 13th day of the first month, that they had developed a plan like this. Now, what the 13th day of the first month was, is in other words, this is Passover Eve. And as we read ahead in the chapter 4 of Esther, chapter 4, and I believe it's either in verse 2 or or in verse 3, there is a fast that is announced amongst the Israelites. And so what we find in the days of Esther is there is no Passover feast. There are no celebrations at all. There is no elated singing that is rising up into the the air. This is I mean this is absolutely unheard of for there to be no Passover celebration and yet that is precisely what is going on though in the book of Esther. Now something else that is very unique and very unusual about the book of Esther is that You can read it from its very start until the very end. And not one time will we find God's name mentioned in this book. And so we see all of this darkness and all of this pain and all of this fear that is in this book. I mean, it was a tremendous threat. And I'm sure a lot of people who originally read this book would have had the impression that that God is absent. God is disconnected from his people. And it's like, God isn't Helping us anymore. God is somewhere far away and we are pretty much on our own in this situation. And in just so many ways, as we read the book of Esther, what is going through through our minds is, what in the world is going on here? I want us to imagine death and darkness at a Thanksgiving feast, where we come into the New Testament now and we now find Jesus seated at a table celebrating the Passover with his followers and with his disciples. And so they are rejoicing as they remember the blood on the doorpost. They are looking back to the Red Sea about God rescuing his people, and they are are just having a feast, just as they, they had every year of their lives at Passover time. And as we read Matthew chapter 26, though, it's very clear, though, that this is a very strange and a very unusual Passover. And that's because there is a sadness at this party. Whereas Jesus sits there and he has Passover with the 12 disciples. What he says is is that, I have earnestly desired to have this Passover with you. And yet what comes after that though is, his very next words are, before I suffer. And there in Matthew chapter 26, verse 21, what Jesus says is, it says that, that as they were eating, Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And it says, And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, Is it I, Lord? Jesus answered, He who has dipped his hand into the dish will betray me. And that, of course, is a reference to the Passover feast. Verse 24 says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never even been born. And so, right off the bat, at this particular Passover feast, what we see is betrayal. Jesus saying, woe to the one who was seated at this table. It would have been better if he had never been born. And obviously, he is speaking about Judas Iscariot. And after three years of, of living together and, and, and of him growing under Jesus' tutelage, this is the very last time we will ever see Jesus and Judas Iscariot there together. And we also know that what immediately comes after this, after Judas leaves, leaves that upper room, is that Jesus has bread in his hand and he, and he starts something brand new in the world. That, as he says, as I break this bread, this is symbolic of my body which will very soon be ravaged. He takes a cup of wine and he says, this is symbolic of the blood that will gush out of my veins when I am lifted up on the cross. And as Passover was, was very rich in symbolism, never before had it been this rich in symbolism. As what we also hear reference in either Mark or in Luke's account of this event as it's depicted, is, is that the Passover lamb has been slain, and, and now it's very quickly about to take on a whole other meaning. And as Jesus sits at the table and has this very sad and very unusual Passover with his followers, Most strikingly in the Gospel books, it said that it was night. That word night, all throughout the Word of God, is very symbolic of something that has danger. Of something that has a tremendous, excruciating sadness or a darkness to it. And as all of this is going on in this very unusual Passover, we can just imagine now 11 of those disciples looking at each other thinking, what in the world is going on? I mean, what is happening here? I want us to imagine there being absolute despair at a 4th of July fireworks show, where Jesus has now been crucified, and he is lying in his tomb after his burial. And we find those 11 disciples locked away in an upper room. They are hiding behind closed doors, and as you might imagine, it is is very, very, very silent in this room. If anybody speaks at any point to each other, it is, it is whispering. There's a minister whose name is Brian Zond in Missouri, and a week or two ago, after he had recorded his message of the church where, where he's a minister of, what he wrote on Twitter was that we live stream our services from our building with a total of eight people. And yet the strangest part is when we're done. After I have preached, I give the blessing and nothing, just silence. Not a holy silence, just a dull, sad silence. And then he said there is a definite sadness to it. And as the disciples are are hiding away behind closed doors in the upper room, this is a silence that has a sadness to it. Where these men are absolutely heartbroken, sleep deprived, confused and disillusioned about Jesus, where, where... What happened? I mean, we were with this guy for three years, and on a daily basis we saw one proof after another that he was the Messiah. But now he's dead. He's lying in that that grave right down the street from us, and so it's game over now, where we just couldn't get him elected as Messiah. We were that close. You just can't fight city hall. And so they're talking about going back to their old lives and to their old jobs as fishermen and as tax collectors. In the book of Acts, in the 13th chapter, the the Apostle Paul stands up in a synagogue and he says something that that had to have been filling the hearts of the Apostles as they hid away in that upper room. Acts 13, what the Apostle Paul says of of Christ in verse 28 is is that though they found in him no, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. And yet, then, what comes after that are the most true seismic, important, gargantuan words that we can imagine that change the world forever. Where the very next words in verse 30 are, But God. But God raised him from the dead. And so he was dead and he, he was placed in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, it says. So often in this life, we have been accustomed to that word, but, being the worst news imaginable. You know, the kind of news that, that leaves a lump in our throats and that turns our body into ice. Where it's a doctor going to a loved one and saying that, that we did all that we could but there was nothing more that we could do for them. Where it's a person who has given us kind of good news, but, but then that word but comes as they say, but there is also bad news, and you're probably going to want to sit down for this part. And I mean, it is just the most earth-shakingly good news that, that forever changes everything, where it says, we killed Jesus, we nailed him to the cross, they had placed him in a tomb, dead, But God. And so I mean, what this means is that even, as it says in the book of Romans chapter 5, even when we were weak and we were enemies of God, it says, but God shows his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Or it's the Apostle Paul as he writes in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And what he says about them as well as us is, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the way in which you once walked. He says in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God. God's people were that close to being destroyed in the book of Esther. But God, through Esther, was prepared for such a time as this. Yes, it's true, Jesus was bludgeoned on the cross. Yes, it's true that that as he bowed his head and breathed his last, and they placed him in that tomb, every demon in hell erupted with jubilant celebration. But God, Acts chapter 13, verse 30, but God raised Jesus from the dead and from the grave. And yet, this is also our story as well. Where no matter what this world ever has thrown at us, ever will throw at us, our response to all of this put together, each and every instance, no matter how difficult it was, is but God. Where as a church, we we have people among us who can actually say that I was born during the Great Depression, but God. I lived during World War II in the days of Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini, but God. My husband or my wife died, and and I was then a widow, but God. I was a black woman or a black man growing up in a segregated city, but God. I was diagnosed with cancer, but God. I was a person growing up with with no self-esteem, constantly battling fantasies of suicide. But God. And as for all of us living in this very scary time, as COVID-19 ravages our world and our economy, even in this situation, our response to it is, collectively, emphatically, triumphantly, is, but God but God. And so the Israelites had been locked away in slave houses. The apostles had been locked away, hiding behind closed doors in the upper room. This morning, at this very moment in time, you and I are locked in our houses. And yet as we close this morning, we have these beautiful, comforting words. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and in verse 19, it says that on the evening of that day, on the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again a second time, Peace be with you. And now as you and as I sit here locked away in our homes on this very strange, very unusual Easter morning, more than anything, let us capture the reality that right now, at this very moment in time, the risen Savior Jesus is with us. He is communing in our midst. Jesus does not live in a cathedral. Jesus lives in us, dwelling in our hearts through faith. And just as the ancient Israelites had their Passover and their Passover lambs, so we Christians have ours. Jesus is our Passover. And because he triumphed even over the grave itself, that day where we did our absolute worst to him, now we reminisce on that and we we call that Good Friday. And that's because he brings celebration to our darkness, beauty to our trauma, and he turns our despair into dancing. But, God. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, as you laid in that tomb early that morning, all of hell shouted towards the heavens. Where is your God now? Where is your Jesus now? Perhaps there are some people in this world who at this very moment in time, They see empty cathedrals, and what they say is, where is your Jesus now? And yet our response to this, Father, is that Jesus is in Tracy's perseverance. Jesus can be seen and experienced in Marianne's joy. Jesus can be seen in Lynn and Evelyn's sweet smiles, in Judy's kind spirit, and Don's passion to live the Christian life, Jesus can be seen in every single one of us in this church this morning. You exist in our hearts. You are dwelling in our midst. You are with us in our living rooms right now. Lord, we rejoice at that day that, that you walked out of that, that empty tomb alive. A couple of weeks ago, as we read in the book of Daniel, we we read about a furnace that that was heated seven times the ordinary heat. And now, Father, in our world, it feels as if this this pandemic is is warming up seven times more intensely than what it was two weeks ago. And yet, our response to this as, as your faithful people is but God. But God, in the strong and resurrected name of Jesus, our living Savior and King, amen.